welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 310 and my conversation with University of North Carolina at Greensboro percussion professor, Eric Willey. We'll get to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou and some places you may get to see me in the very near future. On the date that this posts, September 15th, 2022, Marching Mizzou will be heading to Kansas City to play halftime at the Chiefs-Chargers Thursday night football game. Now, it's in a brand new location this year, as the Thursday night football games are streaming on Amazon Prime. And I have no idea whether or not they'll show any of the band on TV, since we're only playing halftime, and won't be in the stands performing during the game, but I'm still very much looking forward to this. Okay, now for some of my stuff. The big thing is I am giving my first percussion recital since one week before the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which would be March 2020, this Monday, September 19th at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. It will be in the Cheryl Crow Hall in the Sinkfield Music Center on the campus of the University of Missouri, if you're local. But if not, it will be live-streamed on the YouTube channel for the Mizzou School of Music. I'll post updates on my webpage and in the notes here, as well as on social media. The program will consist mostly of solo marimba music, but the close of the program will be a new composition of mine for percussion trio that I am playing with previous podcast guests, Megan Arns and Alexandros Fragiscatos. So join and watch if you are able. Secondly, this Sunday, September 18th, I will be a guest on the Percussive Arts Society's University Pedagogy Committee Sunday Night Interview Series, which will be on Facebook Live, on the PAS University Percussion Committee's Facebook page, and this will be this Sunday, September 18th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. That will be live, and then will be embedded on their page after that. So check that out. And finally... I just recorded a roundtable episode on percussion podcasting for the At Percussion Podcast that will be broadcast on Thursday, September 22nd, and that will include other members of the percussion podcasting world. More to come on that when it posts. Oh my gosh, that was a lot of me. That was way too much of me. That's enough. That's enough. Let's get to Eric. Eric and I have met over the years here and there. And I've certainly known of Eric for a long time with his association with Tennessee Tech, through various friendships, performances at PASIC, and of course, his percussion position at UNCG. As many of you might know, if you listen to this show, UNCG was the place of my master's and doctoral degrees, though I was studying under my longtime mentor, Court McLaren, and he was recently on this podcast for episodes 300 and 301. In any case, it was great to have Eric on. Eric's been involved in many facets of percussion throughout his life. He's worked in and developed multiple percussion programs, has a wide range of performance and teaching abilities, and has won the International Percussion Ensemble Competition for PASIC a couple of times in his career and at different schools. He has ties to Austin P University, where he studied with recent podcast guest David Steinquest, along with being at very well-established programs at the University of Kentucky and North Texas. He's been involved in DCI and, just this year, participated in the Fulbright program, 
studying Maraca II in Brazil. We'll get to all of that and a lot more in this interview, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 11th, 2022, and it begins right now. I have no idea what this would be, but if something comes up, you don't want to talk about whatever's your way of telling me to stop with the uh, <laughs> with the thing. Just just do that. Hand signals. Yeah. If you need yeah, to man. just turn around and play some De La Clues right behind you, I mean, just, just jump oh, right no. like, I'm not going to. No. Nobody needs that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody needs that right now. Yeah. <laughs> So, Eric, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. Oh, wow. Well, that's a great question. So, I'm actually returning back to UNCG this fall. A couple of big things that I'm super fortunate of. uh, I got full professor, so I'm officially old. Yes. uh, Which goes along with the gray hair now. And, uh, yeah, I I was actually on research leave last spring. I was fortunate to get a Fulbright, and so... Coming back out of that mindset and then getting back in school, it's it's been fun. It's been fun to come back and see the students again. So, uh, yeah, that's where we are. Doing meetings this week and have auditions this weekend and start teaching on Tuesday. Tell me a little bit about getting the job at UNCG, where you were beforehand, and kind of what the situation you were walking into. Before I arrived here in Greensboro, I was at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee for nine years. I was there for a, for an interim year and then eight years as assistant and then associate professor. A friend of mine, actually, a, somebody that actually taught in an indoor drum line when they were in high school, Chris Keaton, was here, I guess, two people before me. There was an interim person. And I was hosting Michael Burrett at Tennessee Tech in March of, God, when was that? 2013. And Burt landed, and I knew that his best friend was Chris Norton. And so Chris Norton was a good friend, so I surprised Michael with a trip to meet Chris Norton at a coffee house. And they were talking, and they said, you know, what's going on with Chris Keaton? And uh, so that's when I'd found out. I kind of found out a little bit earlier that Chris had won the Pershing's own job, which is huge. I don't know if you know Chris at all, but, man, he's an amazing person, amazing player, and just, yeah, just great individual. And so I kind of had a heads up on it then. And then, uh, yeah, the job opening came open in December and, and I applied and there was no Zoom around that year. They, were, they invited the candidates to campus, which was, which was great for me. I'd been to Greensboro before, already knew the school, kind of knew the layout of the city a little bit. So it was fun to come back and see the city. And then I got the job off for about a week, week after that. So you, you knew you, were, you had the job pretty early then? I remember the interview because it was, you know, you have no idea when you apply for a job, like what's going to happen. Like if you're going to make it, if you're going to get invited, when that's going to happen. So I was doing a faculty recital, I guess it was mid February and I had to change my program because I was interviewing the next week. And so I had to redo my whole program so I could do the job interview. I think I found out it was during my spring break because during that week of my spring break that year, which so it was like the second week of March is when I was deciding and then accepted that week. So by the third week of March that of 2014 is when I had known. So I was able to come in and talk with the students that had auditioned and fortunately get all of the incoming freshmen to come to school. 
when you get the job, are, is, are you on a, because you already have an associate's position coming from, did you negotiate or was it set up so you could get either, because that's not, because you, you just said you, you just got full, that's mm-hmm. eight years, that's a, that's a typically a shorter, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, so what, yes. How, how did that work out? Yeah, so I'd had three years as an associate professor is what I think happened. So I had, whatever, six years as assistant, was associate for three years at the previous, at Tennessee Tech. So when I got here, the job was assistant professor. It was not negotiable. Um, Nothing like that was going to happen, which was actually fine. And so at the end of your third year, you have a review. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's based on all of your, you know, your research and creative activity. But the biggest thing that they wanted me to do there is because that three year timeline, like none of my teaching in my previous university was evaluated, considered. So it was only my teaching here at UNCG. So essentially I got noticed that I passed the review and then I turned around and applied for uh, promotion and tenure to associate professor. And then I did three years of that. And then I applied as early as I can, because I had six years at associate professor status from the previous, with the previous school. And so I was able to go up early. Oh, okay. I guess your colleagues at, at UNCG were fine with, or thought that that, that was an acceptable amount of time. I mean, obviously you would need their, their uh, approval on something like that. Right. Yeah, you, you have to apply and then, you know, you're it's the normal thing where you're evaluated at the, you know, the school or department level and then the college level and then the university level with the provost office and then the UNC system here is when you get final notice. And so, yeah, everything, everything worked out well. And yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah, I've got some great people to work with here. While you've been at UNC, what, what has been the kind of the typical studio size and, and who do you have other people working with you in the department? That can be a touchy subject, uh, but I'd like to keep the studio hovering around 20. Mm-hmm. You know, the optimum is, I think a lot of schools is that if you have a graduate program, if you're fortunate to have a graduate program that you've kind of got 16 and six, yeah, uh, 16 undergrads, six grad students. And so we've hovered around that this fall. I have, 25 right now. Last fall, we had 24. Some of those students are also in composition as well. There's a mix of music ed, uh, our new degree, pop tech. Um, So there's kind of a wide array that they're not all doing the same thing, fortunately. Yeah, 16.6, as far as help, um, I've always had two teaching assistants. And so because of the teaching load, and my research and creativity load, like I've always tried to make sure that the DMA person that comes in can, well, any of the grad students, I want to make sure that they're bringing information with them, Sure. that they're not just coming to school. They'll kind of wait to be told. So if they don't already have an identity or if they don't have anything that they're passionate about, then they, they shouldn't come to school here because they're going to need to develop themselves as individuals. And so with the doctoral students, I need them to, make sure that they have teaching experience in public schools and in front, you know, so they can teach uh, percussion techniques course uh, that I feel comfortable putting them in front of an ensemble 
undergraduate ensemble, as well as bringing something that is different than what I do to the undergraduate students. You know, so we had like my TA now, Amy Yen, like she's from China. How she plays marimba is totally different than how I approach the instrument, you know, and so it's such a great opportunity for the students to learn from her and me the same time so they can craft their own toolbox um yeah and i had a student before like ben cantrell who had done a lot a lot of playing musicals i had a student andrew barlow that had done off-broadway drumming and musicals as well as world percussion so um to answer your question those are my extra teachers Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're working to hopefully develop um, another faculty line here for uncg percussion uh, right now, the percussion area is me mm-hmm. uh, and the TAs. And then we, we just hired a new drum set teacher that's in the jazz area. But unfortunately, I don't teach his students and he doesn't teach my students. And that's something that we have to change. Some of them get opportunities to study with each other. Like we, you know, we trade students. But at this point, um, yeah, it's me. And mm-hmm. so I'm hoping that we can change that soon. When you are looking at future grad students... Is that part of the some of the discussions with them when they're applying? Like, like you tell them outright. I, I like I, my expectation is you bring some or your your skill set as you bring them is going to be used. Yes. Yeah, different words, but I definitely I think that what happens sometimes is, and I may be generalizing, but just some I know that some of my frustrations going through school and then learning to teach and then observing is that we've always had these like pieces and you kind of do those and then you do those. And then I realized like that wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love those pieces. I respect those pieces, but I also want to do this. And so the hardest thing I think for people to develop as they're becoming these professionals is to realize that they can have their own opinion and that they need to have their own opinion and that they, when they play a piece of music, they don't have to sound like somebody else that played it. They need to have their own identity. And I think that's what I'm looking for, especially for doctoral students, uh, is that I'm looking for somebody that has their own identity, that's passionate about solo literature and chamber playing, and um, that they can present information to to students. So one of the, one of the, you know, they we're fortunate here. They do a pre-screening process, and then if we have doctoral students, they're they're invited to campus. They do a an hour recital, mm-hmm. uh, or they do a thirty-minute recital and then a thirty-minute interview, which is just like they would do for a college job interview. But then they also have to do a thirty-minute presentation for the percussion studio, and that's my way of making sure that they can present information. Yeah, funny yeah. because because you know John Locke when I. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. When, when I got John was a great supporter and uh, was on the committee when I was hired. So when I got the job in March, there were two students that contacted me and auditioned for their DMA before I got to campus. So we did their interviews via Skype then. Mm-hmm. And they both did well. And I wanted to accept um, one of the students. And when we turned <laughs> the camera off, John Locke asked me, and this is something that stuck with me. John Locke asked me, he's like, Eric, do you think they can get jobs right now. And I said, no, but you know, with a little, little help and insight. And he's like, if they don't have it right now. They're never going to have it. You know, that was his kind of thing. Like if they don't have that determination and that clarity of what they're communicating, it's not just going to appear in three years. 
And his funniest thing was like, Eric, a DMA student is a gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and he made a good point. It's like, I get to be in contact with these people for the rest of their career. We get to discuss stuff. I get to learn from them. And then we talk about, because I'm older, the process. So it's been a really, that adage has really stuck with me from John Locke. of just like, yeah, find people that, that you can communicate with and learn back and forth from, not just do it my way or I'll see you later, you know? Sure. As you've worked with, you know, particularly the, the DMA students, how much, what are, what are the kinds of things that you do to get them prepared? Because obviously if they're going for a DMA, more likely than not, they're trying to get a college job. Um, right. So how are you working towards getting them more prepared for those kinds of um, upcoming situations for them? You know, we're lucky here in North Carolina, as you know, like there's so many, there's so many opportunities for teaching mm-hmm. as well as playing, you know, just in the triad alone, there's, yeah, it's incredible. You know, if you're a, a freelance musician, you've got so many opportunities to play, whether it be a lot with, of churches, <laughs> a lot of churches, yeah. you know, you can sub with the symphony or maybe with their educational programs or North Carolina Brass Band or the Piedmont Wind Symphony or Winston-Salem or Greensboro. You know, there's so many Fayetteville Symphony. It's just all over the state. And so um, the thing I've tried to make sure with the DMA students is that they're getting some, they understand that they have to do outside work. And I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, I find that students that only go to school, they may do everything perfectly in school, but if they only go to school, their range of knowledge is so limited um, and they haven't learned how to hunt for themselves. They haven't learned how to hustle yet. And so um, one of the things that I'm just trying to set them up is that we have some good friendships with people in the state and they've been able to have these DMA students teach for them or do presentations or performances and whatnot. So just trying to create opportunities for them. That's real life training. I, I would agree kind of with your, your assessment in terms of the hustle. Do you, I mean, I hope that some of them come to you and be like, what do you suggest? Or can you help me? I mean, that seems like that's always the part of what a, um, you know, what someone who advises doctoral students to me should be like, you're now you have my connections kind of in some ways. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. That I'm trying to help, trying to help open up some bloodlines for them uh, to communicate with people and get more insight. Yeah. We can all, learn from each other and just from observing whether who it is, but yeah, definitely. And I found, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been really lucky these students that have come to study with me. I've, yeah, I'm always humbled by it, but I've, so far the DMA students that have come um, have the, it's the sixth, sixth one right now that's here. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to make sure that they don't do too much. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, because some of them are having opportunities to already teach at a university as an adjunct or a lecturer and try to have a performing career and try to do their TA here. And it's like, look, you're going to have time for all these. Like, just take a break. And this is your last time to be a student. And let's actually keep learning, you know. And oddly enough, you didn't even throw in the last bit, which is some of them are trying to have a family and do all that. That's and that's where a lot of I know that there were a number of people that I went to school with who those didn't work out at the time. They did later, but not not during their doctorate. No, no, yeah, been there. Yeah, it's 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 hard. It's a hard degree to 
to get through and it takes a lot of focus. Yeah. So something has to give, right? Yeah. Obviously, I know the answer to this question because I did my grad degrees there, but tell me a little bit about the facilities <laughs> that you with. Again, I said fortunate a lot, but I'm, I'm lucky to be teaching here. We kind of have our own, you know, we have our own quarter of the basement yeah. uh, where we have, God, what is it? Three, two, six, one, two, three, four. I guess there, there are seven, seven percussion practice rooms. There's an eighth one that's just used by the jazz majors. And then we also have a or percussion ensemble room, room 146, um, where we, we just have percussion ensemble lessons as well as percussion methods. And usually every semester, one class will meet in there. Like this semester, it's a conducting class. And then, yeah, who knows what it may be. Um, yeah, but we're very, very fortunate uh, to have those. It's a blessing and a curse, right? It's like good to have all the gear, but then there's the bargaining of trying to get new heads every year for more tops, you know? <laughs> right, right. Sure. Well, you, you have the, uh, like you, the benefits of recitals are a piece of cake because everything is on the same floor and you can roll it right in and roll it right out. Um, and the band hall is right, is literally right there again. Yeah. like you, nothing effort, but then when you have large ensemble concerts, <laughs> it's not there. Right. <laughs> That knocks us out. It knocks us out for two weeks. Yeah. And it knocks out the students. And we just kind of plan like, yeah, you're not going to have a lesson this week because you're going to be in a dress rehearsal till whenever. And then you're going to have a concert and then you're going to have to tear down and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I wish we could have a set of equipment over there in the auditorium, but um, we've got it worked out now. And we have a one of the TAs is actually the kind of crew chief for moving everything. So that makes me feel better too, knowing that the gear is taken care of by him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Kind of at this point, I'm, I'm curious about where, and I know it's different for grads versus undergrads, but, but where are, are most of the undergrads coming to you from in state? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that you know that we do not have here is any kind of athletic support. Right. We don't have a football team. We don't have a drum line. We don't have a marching band. And so, um, you, do, well, do you all still, you all still play for uh, basketball pep band stuff, right? There's a drum set player that plays. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's usually somebody on campus. It's not somebody that's in the, in the school of music as a major. Gotcha. Um, that was something, by the way, that's something that, um, Dennis Askew used to run when I was there and I played, there was like a season where he needed me to play for a whole lot of stuff. It was great. Oh, nice. Yeah. And Dennis is great. Yeah. I miss him. And he, he told me about that. He did that for a long time. Yeah. He paid me. He, he was paying me out of his pocket to do that too. Oh, oh man. So that doesn't surprise me. No, he was an amazing. Person. Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah, most of the, the undergrads, yeah, pretty much the whole undergrad studio is, I think, except for two people right now. We're all from North Carolina. Yeah, we just we don't have out of state tuition waivers or anything like that. So financially, it's hard for students, and it's I think it's hard for us as teachers to say, yeah, you should you should pay thirty five thousand dollars a year for a music education degree where you're never going to pay off that student loan. You know, we can't. It's hard to justify that. What programs within the state or outside of the state even do you find that you're competing with for students? 
I don't really know. It's been, you know, it's funny, like we're all kind of friends in the state. So right, yeah, John, sure. Beck, John Beck is a wonderful teacher, player, and has a great studio over at School of the Arts. We got Juan Alamo at Chapel Hill. We've got Adam Grohl, Western Carolina. Um, you know, and then we had East Carolina. There's Pembroke, Fayetteville State. Yeah. Um, you know, Lamont Lawhorn and Mike are teaching literally two miles down the road at A&T. Right. You know, it's it's insane. Um, and I find that I only have maybe two, maybe three students a year that are auditioning at multiple spots. So, and it's always funny. Some of the students will want to try to bargain scholarship offers. And it's like, <laughs> you don't realize I'm sitting here texting with him. Like we're... Yeah. <laughs> But no, it's it's a great state, and I think yeah, they all have they all have wonderful programs. Yeah, we it's a good state to be in, you know. And especially when I came here, John Beck was extremely welcoming, and uh, we've been able to trade off clinics for each other. He's come here and done a symbol clinic and done a rudimental uh, percussion clinic, and Adam and I have traded clinics for each other's school as well as Joey Van Hassel, uh, Pembroke. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. There's only a few students every year that will be auditioning from multiple places, and it's never been a, a thing where we get angry at each other. Most of the time, it's pretty funny because the student, like I said, will try to play us against each other for more money on scholarship offers. Let's uh, talk about a little bit about the Fulbright. What was the motivation to attempt to go for it, and where did you end up doing it? Yeah. No, thanks for asking. I can, you may have to tell me to shut up because I get really geeked out about this, but uh, I went through all of my degrees and no one ever talked about external funding. That was never a thing that was brought up. Um, you know, here at UNCG, we have these research grants for doctoral students. They can get, depending on what awards they've already been offered, like they could get a thousand dollars, you know, for one summer to go research. So like Ben Cantrell had mentioned earlier, he got a thousand dollars and he went to, I think he went to New York for like a week and had lessons with Daniel Glass like every day for that week. And so he was able to pay for the lessons and pay for his like hotel room, you know, but I never knew about these things. And there's so many opportunities to get funding, whether it be for gear or your own research to get things that I'm just finding out about. And so uh, summer 2018, I had a lot of good opportunities that summer um, to go play. I was at Neef North. I was in Columbia. I taught Cavaliers. And then I went to play in the New Hampshire Music Festival. And then I went to Brazil. And I'm telling you that because I was lucky. But I'm also telling you that like, I almost lost my mind because I was only home for about six days that summer. I came back and it was like, I need to recalibrate. you know. And I was talking to my wife and... I've had an idea for a book, but to be honest, like that's just what we need is another percussion methods book. Huh? You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah. Anyway. And so my wife was like, why don't you take a second? Like, what do you really want to do? Like you just got back from Brazil. What do you want to do? And it's like, I want to go to Brazil and I want to study Morocco too. Like I want to go there and I want to like, I want to find out what this stuff is about. Uh, Cause I only touched the surface of it. That was the second time I'd went. And so I don't even know how I found out about the Fulbright program, to be honest with you. Maybe I just seen something online. But so I submitted an application for research leave 
and then the next day I submitted my application for Fulbright and the, I'd received a letter of invitation from um, Antonio Bajeto, who's the teacher there in his CFE Pernambuco, which is where it was. Oh, sorry, but this is my way of doing South America. So this is the northeast point. His mm-hmm. CFE is right there on the ocean. Oh, okay. And he's he's the professor there. He's the one. Well, you can see this. There's one of the um, banners from it. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation to do this where I would be able to teach his students there, work with the percussion ensemble, and I would also be able to study in town with um, Mestre Tarcisio Hussenji, uh from Maraca too. And so I got this invitation, and then I was denied a research grant, like leave. Oh, within the school? Within the school. I did not get it. And um, I actually found this out at PASIC, and I was flustered, to say the least. Yeah. Because I'd worked hard to get these international invitations. And uh, Dennis Askew was a chair at the time, and he just said, look, did you pull your application out of Fulbright? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, don't. And so I found out I made the next round and then I ended up getting the Fulbright. And so I kind of, I had to take the research leave. Um, So ended up, I was supposed to go last spring, uh, but because of COVID, I could not. And then this year I went, I was there from, I was there for three months, like February 14th to May 14th. And I was living in Hasifi. I was teaching at the uh, Federal University of Pernambuco, uh, where I was working Along alongside Antonio Bajeto. And yeah, we did the fourth of the, he has these percussion meetings or these percussion festivals in Contro Percussivo. And so we did another one there. And then, um, yeah, I taught there roughly two days a week. And then every Friday, I got to play Maraca 2 on Friday nights. There's this group called Traga y Vasilla. And uh, all these, these groups of Maraca 2 are called Nations. Um, if they're, this is my understanding of from what I was taught is that if they're nations, if they're associated with Candomblé, and so like those are the official groups. And then there are groups where I could play that are percussion groups playing Maraca too. <laughs> so there's a big difference. But on this Friday night, um, you, there's always a time it's like, what was di- what different than we do in the States is it would say 11 o'clock is when you meet so you can hang out. And then we would start drumming at like twelve thirty. Yeah. But and when I and that's eleven p.m. and twelve thirty a.m. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I thought I thought that was very unique because like it was meet at eleven. We'll start drumming around twelve thirty. Like that that social aspect was part of it. But anyway, so these all these different drummers would come and dancers, singers would come from these different nations on Friday night and they would play each other's songs and it was so cool and um and then on saturdays a group i played with uh cable baki um so i got to play with them on saturday afternoons and i got to perform with them several times uh, and then i took lessons with tarcisio Asenji. um and that was kind of my life the rest of the time was just trying to live like a brazilian and yeah it's just a different format my portuguese is getting better <laughs> yeah or it's it it got better and then you now you're back in the states. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, still working on verb conjugations. But, uh, <laughs> it's really like, funny. did you uh, did you but, take did you study Spanish at all growing up? I, I did, probably like everybody, like freshman, sophomore year of high school or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. 
It's like it's ish. It's close-ish to it, right? But um, not- you would you would think, but man, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Living there now, it's hard for me to understand anything in Spanish at all because just the the flow of the words is it's just different. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I like to everybody. So my my friend Joao, he's the one that kind of took me everywhere because he speaks English very well. But he picked me up the first day, dropped me off at the apartment I was staying in, and then the next day it was like, okay, I gotta go get groceries, you know. And I felt like. You know, I'd been taking lessons through the service called Preply, and you talk. I was talking with people three days a week. We never spoke English for like two months before I left. And I was like, oh, "I'm gonna be fine. Gonna be good." No, sir. No, sir. So I texted my wife. I was like, "Look, I'm gonna go down the street, and I'm gonna get groceries. And I'm coming back. If I don't call you in an hour, text you all. Like I've gotten lost or something. You know, like." And I went and I picked out everything, and the lady was like. And I was, you know, I just said like, look, I'm sorry, my Portuguese is bad. I don't understand. And she was just like, you know, <laughs> no, you know nine fingers. Talking <laughs> anymore. Um, so there was no love given. Um, no uh, grace period for you to learn the language. No, the people at the university were very gracious about me taking my time or whatever. But like vendors and things like that on the street, they had no time for you. It was like need the money next. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was great. But um. And it was very welcoming. And, um, you know, there's all the groups in Hasifi. And then there's a town north of that called Igarasu. They have their own group. And I went up there and had a lesson. And they play a total different way than the groups in Hasifi. It's very similar, but it's they play actually their left hand. They get a stick from a tree and they play that. And they do like rim shots because they want to hear every beat. It was, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. It was, made me appreciate made me rethink about how we're approaching music in the university setting because it's all community based there. And, you know, there are kids that are three years old that know how to play these beats better than I do, you know, and they can sing, they learn all the songs and they do this. It's part of their culture. Like they're going to talk to each other and they're going to sing these songs. And one day a week, they're going to, they're going to drum together and they're going to play and they're going to celebrate this music. Yeah. It was pretty eye opening. Did three months feel like enough time? You know, I don't know if you can, let's see, this is a calendar. So my wife got me this and it's got pictures of us from like the month before I left. And so every day I checked it off and because it was kind of, I was there, I was there two weeks. My wife came, I was there two weeks. I came home two weeks and my family came for three weeks. And then I was there for a week by myself. And you know, the, after my wife left on the third week, that, that middle time, it's like with anything, right? It's the middle part that's always hard. And that, that was hard. That seemed long. But when it got, when my family arrived and I only had a month left, it was like, oh my God, I don't, I haven't done enough yet. You know, and I still feel like that. It's like, oh my God, uh, I went there to study Maraca too, but I fell in love with this style of music called Coco or Coco de Samba. And now I want to go back and like learn that because I got to see that. Three months was enough for me to feel comfortable living there and understanding like I think how to adapt in Northeast Brazil. Yeah, I just don't, I don't know enough yet. And it's, it's just, it's, a, it's amazing because in, at least in Northeast Brazil where I was that everything they do, they always tie it to a piece of Brazilian culture. So there's always, there's some kind of lineage that it builds on and uh, which is totally different than what we have in America because a lot of our things, especially in music are like from this 
very small part of Europe, you know, and, you know, Russia that we're looking at. And that's what we study forever. We don't study all these other things, unfortunately. And so it's just fun to see, like, how the stuff is built on culture. And, yeah, you can you can recognize songs from the Northeast, how the, the lines go, like how they sing the lines, you know, like you can recognize where it's from in the country. It's very interesting. Anyway, man, I'm sorry. I could talk about this no, stuff no, forever. No. I get totally geeked out about it. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> It is a percussion podcast. So, yes, this is uh, yeah. <laughs> where you do it. Okay, dumb question, but what what food did you most fall in love with there? <laughs> First of all, I loved it because I was walking everywhere. Everything was close. There was a, a bar that had a restaurant that was a block down. So I, I went there like every other night to talk with my friends. And um, there was a bakery that was on the other side of the block that was in, absolutely incredible. And, and I don't even know what all I ate there. It was just yeah, very colorful, and it was all very good. I think there were two things. There was a fruit called potombo that I like, which is kind of looks like a grape, but you crack it open, and it's kind of a jelly grape uh, that was really good. And then they have this, um, I'm not sure exactly what he, it's kind of like a potato, but it's it just has a different texture called makasheta, uh that was really good. And you could have that with queso coayo, uh, like this kind of salty cheese. Oh man. Yeah. Just so good. Yeah. <laughs> As part of the uh, Fulbright, was there, did you have some type of finishing thing, document, anything that, that, uh, capstones your time there? Well, first of all, let me just think about, it. I realized what triggered the Fulbright was that, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Maria fancy who teaches organ here, mm-hmm. she had done a Fulbright for nine months in Poland. Uh, about organ performance and so i think that's probably what triggered it but as far as with the fulbright um like i said you go through the process you apply in september in december you hear back if you made the first round and then not too much later than that like february is i think when i found out that i was accepted and i could go you do more things in those those later rounds right like do you have to do Uh, interviews or anything they talk what happens I did not have to do an interview, but I think it's maybe because I was applying as a professor. Okay. I think with the student applications, there's an interview process involved. Um, but, and then once you're accepted and there are the kind of, the, there are these two different portals where you keep up with all your information, where you have to submit everything like, you know, your visa and then your finances, like you don't get any finances until you, Till you buy your ticket there and out back. So as soon as you buy that ticket, then that kind of triggers all the finances so you can cover the costs. There's a flight allowance to get in and out. And then there's a monthly stipend. For me, it was I got the first two months together and then I got the last month. Yeah, there's a survey at the end to kind of detail your experience as well as to talk about like what you did, anything that you thought maybe could be better or could be enhanced with Fulbright. Um, because the whole idea is that it's a it's a cultural exchange. You know, it's cool that I'm going there to learn about, you know, I'm teaching at the university, I'm teaching, but I'm teaching like Western classical music is what I was doing there. I was doing symphonic traditions. Um, but it's all about the cultural exchange there, and um, yeah, which was wonderful. And so there was, it took me about three or four days to finish this, the last survey uh, to really make sure I was, yeah, I wasn't just clicking multiple thing, choice things and getting out of there. But I wanted to like really contribute and 
yeah, the Fulbright, the Fulbright people were incredible. Um, and I can't recommend it enough to anybody just, just to have the opportunity to go somewhere and focus on being creative and learning, you know, and not trying to keep your email account below 30, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Which is what ends up stressing us out. I think a lot, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and we lose sight on what we actually originally wanted to do when we started teaching university and that's to be creative, right. Be an artist. So, um, it was, it helped me a lot. Eric, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Uh, <laughs> so I grew up in West Tennessee in a little town called Humboldt. You kind of push the trees back out of Jackson, Tennessee and you see Humboldt. No, I'm just kidding. It was a great town. Uh, wait, 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 uh, like near Memphis or somewhere else in West. Let's see if I can do this. So if, if Memphis here in the West and then Nashville's here, yeah. And then Nashville would be over here. Jackson is about here. And then yeah. Humboldt's just a little bit out of there, probably about 15 miles. So it's kind of, it's kind of your gas stop between Memphis and Nashville. Mm. So, yeah. uh, on I-40. On I-40. Yeah. yeah. Everything's I-40, right? <laughs> right. Or I-24. That's actually the way that, since because I when we visit family in Atlanta from Missouri, oh, yeah. we take that through um, through Nashville. Or it's like Clarksville, Nashville, Chattanooga, Chattanooga, yep. Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I grew up there. I had uh, in high school. I had a two influential, well, actually a lot of influential teachers. But the first was my high school drumline instructor. This guy Brad McCollum. He was in. At the time, it was the Memphis State drumline, mm-hmm. and he came in. He would come home on the weekend sometimes, and we would just go to the high school band room and drum. And that was a big influence. My high school band director, David Kelts, and then um, the fun fact is, if anybody's like tunes into my pie, <laughs> like me on the talking here, the is my first actual private teacher was Julie Hill. And oh wow! Yeah. So she was a freshman at UT Martin, and that was a sophomore in high school. And she was a butt kicker. It was great. It was exactly what I needed at the time. And uh, and then I went to UT Martin for a year. Um, there were some things that happened there. And so I ended up transferring to Austin P, uh, where I studied with David Steinquest. Mm-hmm. Um, did my student teaching, tried to be a band director for a little bit, realized in about the first six, seven minutes of being a band director that that was not my calling very quickly. And that was in Chattanooga. Um, and then I went to Kentucky for my master's taught for a year at UW Whitewater. Mm. Same thing about, about the first month I realized that I was not ready to direct the university program yet. I was happy. I got a job. I was honored. I got a job, but I just, to have something successful, I needed to still learn. And then, um, yeah, I went to North Texas after that. That's kind of the lineage. That's a long answer. I realized you were just asking where I was from, but that's kind sure. of, <laughs> that's okay. And then Tennessee tech and then UNCG, right? Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so first off, did you have any family members in the arts? Yeah, so I started drumming because my dad played drum set in like a, some high school rock bands. Okay. And so so he, you had, had he had a set at the house. No, he didn't. He didn't have a set. He had a his Rogers snare drum that he had from high school. Um, that's all he had left. But he played Wipeout. He played like Sandy Feldstein, Let There Be Drums, and and it got a Davida. I still have his records. <laughs> I'm not sure how old you are, but like for me, like I remember like the start of MTV, yeah. like, and so I turned on MTV 
and I sat on the floor and I had a little plastic drum and I had a cymbal attached on a chair and I would put my foot on my chest of drawers. That would be my bass drum. And I just started mimicking beats. And then I grew older and I had chairs. I'd be folding clothes in the summer. And I remember like learning cheap trick, like Bunny Carlos beats. <laughs> and I was playing with chairs. Then I finally got a drum set and uh-huh. I actually still have this drum set. I was teaching on it this last spring. And um, yeah, I just kind of went from there. Your first experiences were playing, were drum set when you, like, when you start studying more formally? Uh, when I started studying more formally, it was mainly, like, rudimental percussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of a drumline kid. I really enjoyed that. And my, my friend that would come home from Memphis State would show us all these cool things that Memphis State was doing. Because they were doing all these things at PASIC and competing with the drumline. be like, man, show me all this. This is crazy. You know, and so... Uh, I feel like that time really got my hands moving, like understanding how to just to just to move my hands to get some facility. What was your your high school band experience like? I, again, I had this this wonderful high school director, David Keltz, and he showed up my as I was going into my freshman year. He we transitioned band directors, and he called everybody and like introduced himself, which my parents loved because he was making a personal contact. Yeah, I think we had your normal mid-range size band we probably had 80 people at it or something uh, but the thing that i think made a difference was is his dedication so he would he would stay we did marching band heavily in the fall but in the spring he would be there three days a week he would stay till 5 30 and just give lessons no cost just lessons like you sign up and we just stay there and i think that's build a camaraderie and like yeah it just showed me a lot about yeah just caring and like what your students are doing and like sharing information. And um, he was the one that took me to my first drum course show. And he's the one that he's the one that called Nancy Matheson at UT Martin and said, Hey, I've got these percussionists. It was actually me and two of my best friends in the percussion section. We had three of us and we would drive up every week for lessons with Julie. And so it was good. It was good supportive environment, especially with the three of us getting to hang out for those two years driving and taking lessons and, seeing how much fast food we could eat on every trip for our lessons, sure. you know, <laughs> right. When our bodies could handle it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When I could eat six tacos from Taco Bell, I'd still be, be okay. Stay awake. <laughs> when you were growing up, were you involved in anything else, sports, church activities, student government, anything else that was filling out your time jobs? Well, I played baseball until I was, I guess I was 15. I skateboarded a lot. Oh. Uh, yeah, my one of my good percussion friends. That's how actually how we became friends. We were in band together, but he was skateboarding a lot, and I got into skateboarding. Uh, had this 10-foot vertical ramp in my backyard, which is awesome. I, I, cracked, I cracked my hip or something like that, and that was kind of it with skateboarding. Um, but I did that, and then, yeah, through high school, I, I flipped burgers and fried, you know, cooked fries at Sonic. That was my way to pay for my insurance on my car and gas for the car. So, yeah, Have you eaten at Sonic since then? No, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I had plenty of fries then. I tell my kids that. It's like, look, when you get 15, 16, you're going to have to get a job. Yeah. And remember, every time somebody orders fries, put a little extra in there so you can eat them. You know? <laughs> That's the trick. 
Nice. That's a good. That's a good tip. They'll keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. did, did you get into? Um, you, did you march core drum core? I did. Uh, in I marched for a year in the pit, and then the next year I marched and ended up dropping out, and I pulled my back out, and that was it. And then I ended up doing. Um, an indoor drum line in Nashville called Music City Mystique. I did mm-hmm. that for last year. And um, yeah, that was kind of it with that. Ended up teaching a lot of groups. Um, Wait, yeah, so we, who did you who did you march with that, that year? Uh, it was a group called Southwind that I ended up doing. What where were they? Or are they still around? I don't know. Oh god no. They <laughs> uh they were in Montgomery, Alabama, and then they came back out later. They were in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I ended up writing for them many years later. Um, yeah, that was kind of it. Yeah, I did the indoor drumline thing. Then I ended up teaching a lot, a lot of drum corps, which I was fortunate to do, mm-hmm. which helped a lot. Was that soon after you left the performance part, or was that later on? Yeah, I guess it was two, two or three years after I had aged out of Mystique. Yeah, my first, first time teaching was 2001. And that was with Carolina Crown with Paul Rennick was still there then. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up making that connection with him to get to North Texas. You do a year at Tennessee Martin for moving. Yeah. On. Was that program? At, I mean, cause I know that it's a, it's a big program now. Mm-hmm. Was it a big program then? No, Okay. no, pretty much. I think, you know, probably when I was there, there were 10 to 12 majors, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, I just related to Julie just to give you an idea. Like Julie was doing her senior recital my first semester. Mm-hmm. And there were, yeah, there's some good players in there. There were a few, especially really good drum set players. I remember that. I just, I'll never forget. I mean, just aside, but as a side note, I'll never forget because I'm coming from this small high school in West Tennessee. And I get to school and Julie's like doing her senior recital. You know, this was fall of 93. So that's a much different timestamp. And mm-hmm. she's playing Burrett's four movements for Marimba. And she comes out and goes, but don't. What is this? How do you do that? You yeah. know? And so Julie was a huge influence there because she had come from the Stevens camp, I think the year before. And so she just had all this, these ideas and these new pieces that just stuff hadn't been exposed to yet. So she was a um, big eye opening there. Yeah, and then Julie got there in 2005 after Nancy retired. And Julie, I mean, Nancy had really built up the studio before she retired. It was it was a pretty big program. I think it was hovering around the 20s then, and then Julie kept it kept it going and brought it to a national spotlight. Yeah. Well, and you you also had she's a I mean, she was from Martin, Julie, but she was another person small town goes to this school, kind of has a you so that you have like a not only are you seeing this model in front of you, but you actually like, it's a similar life model in some ways too. It is. Yep. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I had a friend that would say, yeah, we're from the same side of the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, you, you, you had said this in your, your uh, lead up here, which is that you went Sorry, remind me again where you finished out your undergrad? At Austin P State University. Austin P, okay. 
What, was that a place when you was Austin Peace somewhere that you had looked at before, or was that just you get to UT Martin, you're like, eh, it's not really. I don't think this is gonna. I don't know. Yeah. No. What you know, I was studying with Nancy Matheson, mm-hmm. so I took with Julie two years of high school, and then Julie went to Arizona State for a master's, and then I started studying with the primary teacher there, and I I just auditioned for Martin. I just kind of showed up one day and the director of bands was at my lesson. I was like, she's like, you know, it's like one of those things you get your all state kid or whatever. So you kind of get a scholarship from that. And I was just going to Martin. Yeah. I didn't even audition. And there was some, the studio, I really enjoyed the studio and I enjoyed Nancy Matheson, but uh, the, the director of bands at the time did not like it that I wasn't there for band camp because I was doing drum corps mm-hmm. and that kind of fed the whole year of negativity. And so, um, a lot of my friends had went to Austin P. They were trumpet players, and uh, they told me like, "Man, you gotta come check out this the percussion teacher here. Like, he's incredible. Like, he does. He writes all these things. He arranges all these things. He teaches the jazz combo. He solos on jazz vibes." I'm like, "Cool, I'll check it out." And so I went and auditioned, and yeah, I had a great experience there with uh, David Steinquist. Yeah, I talked to him not too long ago, actually. Oh, yeah. Was he on the? He's been on the podcast, yeah. Okay, I've got to check that out then. Yeah, it was it was, it was a lot of fun. He was great. Um, that was uh, one of his more recent students was like, you need to talk to him. I'm like, cool. And I knew, it's funny, I knew of his name because one of my first jobs, one of the few pieces we had were his Chick Corea children's songs arrangements. Oh, yeah. Which are really great. Like, they were great, you know, small ensemble, like few resources kind of pieces. Yep. Oh, yeah. He also had uh, a lot of the Bela Fleck tunes when I was there. He was arranging a lot of those, like Metric Lips and Sinister Minister. Some of those tunes, those Victor Witten tunes. Yeah. yeah. And I would show up in his office and he would just, because he, he still does all the recordings for Roll Off. Mm-hmm. And so I'd show up and like he would have music this thick on his marimba that he would have to record the next week. Like just, he was like, you got to be able to sight read. You got to be able to sight read. That was his thing. And that guy can read better than anybody I've ever seen. It was just crazy because he just goes in there and like nails it, does these recordings in Nashville. But yeah, that's long answer to, yeah, it was at Austin P. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, what was the rest of the Austin P experience like in terms of band and the rest of the education there? Uh, it was a pretty small studio, you know, c- comparable to what we had at Martin, maybe a little smaller. It was kind of your smaller marching band, you know, Again, 90 to 100 people, something like that. But um, I feel like I was there at a great time. There were a lot of people that were there that are still doing music professionally, playing or teaching or university professors now. Um, but for me in the studio at the time, there were there were several like drumline guys. There were, there were a few drum set players that were really good. They were always in there. There was a one guy that was playing every Friday night in a, you know, in a country bar that would have like 500 people there every Friday night. And he was playing and I was like, wow, that guy can play really far behind the beat and keep it all together. I just, I remember really being like, how do you do that? And then there was one guy that would, was just this incredible jazz drummer, you know? And um, so there's some good influences there for me for the things that I couldn't do and that I wanted to learn about. Were you looking to get to bigger places or larger things yet or not necessarily? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been asked that. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I mean, that's just for Martin, I went there to study with, with Nancy, and it was familiar. Uh, and already had some teaching gigs lined up for when I graduated high school. For Austin P, my friends were there, and I trusted their advice with the teacher there. And that turned into getting to know pe- people in Nashville um, and get into that kind of marching band drumline scene. And, it, you know, it helped me get a gig teaching at McGavick High School there for a few years. Um, and then for the Kentucky thing, I'd, in high school, I'd watched the Cavaliers drumline. There was an interview with Jim. And I thought the way that he spoke and was very music, like talking about the musical concepts that he did for a drumline, I was like, man, I want to go study with that guy. He seems like he's got his stuff together, you know. And um, and then when I taught at McGavick, there was a guy there, Mark Casey, that was the percussion coordinator at McGavick High School. I just taught the front ensemble and taught some lessons. And uh, he's like, man, you got to go to Kentucky. You got to check it out. Jim's great. And so that's kind of where that worked out. And then... Yeah, just kind of one opportunity led to the next thing as far as moving and getting to learn from different people or getting to have learn from people by working with them, you know, yeah. observing a lot. But there was never a thing of like, yeah, I want to move to here. Sure. There was never, never that. It was kind of like, where can I go to learn something new? Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. What kind of stuff were you, what kind of, what were some of the, li- I mean, obviously we talked about some of Steinquest's arrangements, which you may or may not have been playing, but what kind of lit were you covering um, as an undergrad? Um, you know, we didn't we didn't do too much uh, when I was there. Besides, we kind of did your normal fare of concert stadium and solo marimba literature, and you know, maybe do a couple of setup multi pieces on your recital or some studies to pass barriers, but. That was kind of it. And then when I got to Kentucky, um, I really had to spend some time on just orchestral rep, uh, especially timpani. And then same thing with setup pieces. And then just getting influences of music um, not from the States, you know, like whether it be some Caribbean influence uh, or, yeah. I always tell everybody when I interviewed at Kentucky, Jim asked me and said, you know, what do you want to do in your graduate degree? And I said, well, man, there's, there's three things. I have no non-Western experience at all. I want some like frame drum or, you know, conga experience, whatever, just another style. Uh, I need orchestral experience and then I need drum set experience. He's like, cool. He's like, our steel band does this. I teach tabla. I teach frame drum, balron. I teach blah, blah, blah. We just hired Jason Tiemann. He's going to be coming in. You can do drum set studies with him and I'm principal percussionist with the Lexington Philharmonic. So that's going to be fine. We're going to be able to cover all those things. I was like, cool. You know, it's kind of, for me, it kind of filled those voids at the time that I really needed. Yeah. And the students there were incredible. Um, I walked into Jim's office one day and this guy, Ellis Hampton was going, playing all the stuff from Remba. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go upstairs and practice now. <laughs> it, was, it was very humbling. And yeah. so that's what I needed at the time. Cause I could do some things really well, but I need these other areas that I really needed to be, I needed to get with some people that were focusing on those areas. So it, it helped. And then with North Texas, it was kind of the same thing too. I had the opportunity obviously to stay with Ford, got a lot of creative incidences with Dean, um, 
got to still work with Paul some, and then, but I also had the opportunity to play in Gamelon with Ed Smith. I got to play, study and play with Jose Aponte mm-hmm. uh, with Afro-Cuban things. And, and there were some of the students there that we just would study the things together too. And it was the same thing at Kentucky. At Kentucky, there were a group of us that would just, in May every year, we would pay like our own money and we would just have like a week-long camp. So one year we had Jerry Steinholtz, he came, and then the next year we paid for Michael Spiro to come in. Yeah, just so we could keep cultivating and keep learning. I, and I've, it's funny, I've heard that. I've, I've Over the years, I've talked to a lot of Jim's students, I, you can imagine. Uh, same thing with North Texas, but with Jim, that's the one thing I've heard is that basically he's like, uh, he tailors the grad programs to the grad students and what they want to do. And that's like, just like, this is what you want to do, great. Yeah. You hear all these stories about Buster Bailey, like people would go have lessons with Buster Bailey and he'd be like, evidently like his first lesson would be like, okay, what can you not do? What sucks? You know, well, I can't do this. Okay. And they'd make up exercises to like, to get your hands moving, what you need to do. And I felt like Jim was the same thing. Like it's kind of like we talked about earlier. If you don't, you know, you should have an idea of what you want to do. You're there for two years or three years. It's very quick. If you don't have an idea of what you want to be doing, then I can't help you. <laughs> you know, sure. so he was very good about setting, setting those things up. I, and I, it's weird. I feel like, I don't know if you feel the same way. It, Cause it, it, that feels like when you get to a doctorate, um, I always feel like I feel, sometimes feel like a master's is very, can very much feel like an, an, an extended undergrad, but yeah. A doctorate is like completely self-directed. Like you have to be the motivation. You have to want that degree and you have to be motivated to do that degree. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the the hardest thing that you have to learn, you know, like this is where you're, you're becoming the professional yeah. to have to drive. Yeah. Yeah. Good observation. You, you said, so for the, that you have the year before you do your master's that you, you teach, Right. Yeah. So what was it that because I've had a few people over the over the time kind of tell me that sometimes it's um, this is not the environment I'm, I want to be in necessarily. Sometimes it's I, I actually like really want to pursue the percussion, part, like the, the my own studies and my own playing and do that. What, what kinds of things did you realize once you get into the teaching? You're like, it's not not right now or just never for me. I think you're talking about between my undergrad and master's where I was yes. doing the band directing thing. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that, you know, in that fall, I student taught and mm-hmm. the band was going to the Rose Bowl parade, I think Ooh, is yeah. what it was. Yeah. And so I also think that the cooperating teacher that I was working with, Jeff Beckman, who was a king, I think he also like had figured me out that I was not going to be doing this. You know, I think he knew more than I did. Like, because I, <laughs> I would come at night and teach percussion lessons and I would come at night and practice. Like I wanted to keep playing. And I think he realized that. So with the Rose bowl and I think him realizing that I really just wanted to be doing percussion stuff. I didn't get in the band that much. I gotcha. You know? And then, but when December came around, like I'm diabetic, I needed to get a job. I needed to get health insurance. Like I, I need to find something to do. And so my last day of student teaching, I interviewed and got this job in Chattanooga. And the teacher there had lost his licensure. The Ooh. kids loved him. And so it, <laughs> it came into that job. They were going to fail. Um, but, but I just realized, like, I, 
I didn't have the passion to take a clarinet home and learn alternate fingerings every night to get over the break, or I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't understand how to tell flutes to not overblow and play the wrong octave. You know, I didn't understand those things enough, and I realized I wasn't passionate about learning that either. You know, and so I decided to go ahead and, you know, the, I was in Chattanooga, so Monty Coulter was nice, and I was able to practice there, and then prepare for grad school auditions. <laughs> That's a, a that's a tough combo when you get the lose licensure with the students love the the guy. It's like that's a you're like what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, and I knew that going in and the reason I got the job is because they looked at my resume and I had taught the band camp for the band So I was at this the school I was doing and the school I taught band camp for, they had played each other in the state like football contest or whatever for like, I guess, triple A football. And they love that band. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I got the job, which is because I taught band camp there for a few years. Gotcha. It's like, you, you don't understand. Like I taught the drum line. I didn't, right. I didn't run a band rehearsal. I have, I have no idea what I'm doing yet. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, I realized that's quickly that it was not my calling for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the right move. Get out. If that's, yeah. if not. While you're at Kentucky, who are some of the other students that are there at the time that you're studying with? Oh, like my colleagues there? No, no, yeah, at Kentucky, yeah. Yeah. So when I came in, um, I was the incoming master's TA and the doctoral TA was uh, uh, Kenyon Williams mm, yeah. in, in Minnesota. Yep. does a lot of PAS stuff, too. Um, we were there together. Um, a guy named Rob Parks. Um, just recently passed, but, um, and then Alice Hampton, we were actually in a quartet together and which was wonderful. We did like a two week tour, played for the, at the, then it was the Bands of America percussion festival. Uh, it's now the music for all festival. Um, yeah, they were there. Um, here's James Landrum, who's in a military band now. Uh, Ralph Hicks was just graduating when I got there. Ralph has had some wonderful programs in Texas. There were a slew of students there that time from Irmo, South Carolina, um, that were there. John McMahon, Andrew Schlager, got him Dallas Gambrell was there. Yeah, I don't know. There was a strong crew. And then in the drum line, there was guys like Brian Spicer and Dave Schmuck, some of these guys that had done a lot of like Cavaliers and a lot of drum corps things that were really yeah, they're great, great players and great influencers, if you will. Got it. Yeah. Um, I know that G- that Jim does a lot of things with, I assume that he does this with the masters as well as the DMA students, but he, that he very much treats you all like, like teaching colleagues, uh, you know, to the point where you're doing a lot of, um, you know, like you're on his side of the table when you're doing, uh, auditions or like he's, he's including you in a lot of that stuff, right? Yes. And that, that was so beneficial, you know, like being on the audition committee, you know, and like hearing everybody and seeing how Jim would talk to people. And yeah, I've definitely like, I would imagine all of us that have, that had that opportunity, like we're, we're still doing the same things. So I'll still do the same things here. Like student auditions, I'll try to tell them like, we don't waste any time. I'm like, look, you're going to be great here. I want to have you here. Or I don't think you're going to make it here. And here's why, 
blah, 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 you know? And uh, Jim was very candid about those things to let them know like where they were kind of at the end of the audition, most yeah. of the time, depending on the year. Um, but yeah, he was very much so. And he trusted us. So that can, that quartet that I mentioned, mm-hmm. we rehearsed on our own and he came to like our dress rehearsal before BOA. We'd already done a tour and everything. He trusted us, but he came to hear us before BOA and he was like, yeah, sounds great. Maybe you can just keep your head up when you're talking to the crowd. Hey man, you guys sound good. You're making me look good. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take all the credit. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll be credit clause. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, very much. And you know, I think those, those grad programs where you get that opportunity, it's, it's crucial if you're going to, if you're wanting to like teach at a university level or do those kind of things where you have to, especially auditions, you have to learn how to do that and talk to, talk to people. Well, you said that kind of when you were laying everything out that you go to uh, Wisconsin Whitewater. Is that right? Yep. For, for a year. Just one year. So, yeah. okay. So a couple questions. One is, was, was that like you were not sure you wanted to do a doc? Were you also applying for doctoral programs at that point and you also applied for a job or you got it? Was that Jim saying, hey, you should check this out? Like you should test this out? What was kind of the status of, of what you were looking at at that point? I was interested, you know, 2001 it was a much different scene than it is now. Mm-hmm. At the time, you could have a master's and go get a college job. You know, there wasn't kind of this mandate of having this terminal degree of a doctoral degree. So when I finished my master's degree, I was like, cool, I'm done. I can just play. I'm not going to write any more papers, you know? Um, so what happened that year, I actually interviewed at three different places and Whitewall was the third. I interviewed at Sanford. Uh, Tracy Wiggins was leaving for, to go to Hart to do his doctorate and he needed an interim. So I interviewed there, which I guess it turns out is that the person that got it, Grant Dalton, was like in Tracy's wedding or something. So like, there's no way I was getting that job. Uh, And Grant's great. And so is Tracy. Um, Then I interviewed at UT Arlington for the drumline spot and Ken and Wally stayed. So I didn't get that. And then this Whitewater job came open and I got invited for a live interview. I did a phone interview and then I got invited for a live interview and I was like, Oh, well, cool. I'm not going to get the job, but hey, I'll get to go to Whitewater and see the birthplace of DCI mm-hmm. and get some custard that I've been hearing about. So, <laughs> um, so I went up there and it, I got stuck in O'Hare the night before. I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning, catch a bus to Beloit. And then I got off the Beloit bus stop and the chair picked me up. And then we drove to Whitewater and, uh, you know, at that time, God, I was 25, you know, I was just like, ah, I'm getting to do a trip. This is fine. You know, and I was just talking to her. And then when we finished the interview, they said, you know, why don't you take Eric around to look at apartments and houses? And I was like, oh, OK, well, that's a, that seems like that's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know. And so I ended up getting that job. That was, I don't know. God, probably the second week of June, something mm-hmm. like that, really late. Yeah, really. They just gotten their approval for the job. And yeah, I came there, moved in. And um, not too long after drum, I taught Madison Scouts that summer. And so not too long after the, no, I taught Carolina Crown that summer. And then I came back not too long afterwards. And yeah, I was there and 
Yeah, I just, there was something about it that didn't fit for me there. And it was kind of like the, the band director job. Um, the previous teacher there at Whitewater was working on his master's degree. And the students loved him. And he's great. Killer player. He's still teaching. Um, his mom was on faculty. But they couldn't hire him because he didn't have his master's degree. Right. And so then they hired me as the outside guy. So it was already tough love as it was. I like telling everybody the student because like you can always learn from everybody. And so that first semester, the students crucified me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I could have been, you know, I could have been, you know, Paul Price or Tom Sawway or whoever the best pedagogue at the time was coming in there. It wouldn't have mattered. I think whoever was going to be slaughtered. But all the comments that those students like, I guess they thought they were nailing me on, did nothing but help me as a teacher. You know, and it really like made me tighten up my ship and like get more organized. Then from that one semester, I would say a lot of the things that I'm still doing now that have been successful come from those students. So I feel like I need to I owe them all a lesson fee. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I wasn't ready. I didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. I didn't know enough to teach. I realized pretty quickly that I was going to have a wide array of students. So I had, you know, Steve Weiss was the jazz band director there. And he went there to direct, like he left there to go direct the one o'clock band at North Texas. And so there were guys there for his like kind of jazz messengers, Art Blakey sextet kind of group. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I didn't know about. I hadn't studied Art Blakey. I played a lot of drum set, but I just didn't know that. And so I realized like, oh, there's this whole drum set side that I got to know more about, you know. And then the previous teacher um, had a big spiral influence and done a lot of Santeria stuff, Afro-Cuban things, and was a monster player. And so the students knew all these songs and like how to sing in this other language. I was like, I had no idea about any of this. Mm-hmm. So there were two big things like, I can teach orchestral things and I can be a marimba jockey and I can play all the orchestral standard things, blah, blah, blah. I've got this channel, but like these other things, I'm not ready to teach everybody and share that information. Um, yeah. And it just, it just happened to work out. I wasn't happy there. And my spouse at the time um, was good friends with some people in Texas and she got a job. The TA opened and um, yeah, I ended up going to North Texas and getting that system. So, yeah. yeah, timing timing was good. I was lucky. Yeah. Was the position a tenure track position that you got or a temporary or? No, it was just a lecture position. Okay. Yeah. Now, I think it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, Toby took that the year after I left. And I think Toby's still there if I'm not uh, mistaken. Doing great things. Was there, is there anything, I know you said that you learned an enormous amount from that, from those, from that first semester. Is there anything like one thing specifically that, that was stated that you were like, oh, all right. The best thing is it really helped me like for rehearsals, I would like for percussion ensemble rehearsals, you know, I'd kind of come out of matches with Jim where it was just a different level student. It was a different student, you know, but Jim could go, we're, we're doing this piece next week. So you needed to be able to hold peace. Right. <laughs> you know, the next week you needed to be able to play the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It didn't have to end. Uh, the students, like all of them, that was a common theme that each of them put. It's just like, you know, rehearsals aren't as organized. Like it just, we don't know exactly what to prepare. And it was like, in my mind, I was like, you learn the whole piece. 
that, right. that's what you do, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but that, cause that'd been in the model. And so that really helped. And that's really helped my planning now is that like, I kind of have a procedure, especially with percussion ensemble. Like I have a procedure that I go through to get ready for concerts or, you know, like this last year we played at PASIC. There's a very specific procedure that works for me and it helped me get there. So I always start with the hardest piece, part of the piece now. And we do that first and then we go to the next part and then we start adding, but it's never, it's, it's helped me really that one comment that was pervasive throughout all of them prevalent rather uh, throughout all their comments really helped. You get to North Texas. What's the first, there are some obvious answers to this. I recognize that when I'm even asking, but what's your first uh, introduction to being in the state of Texas? And then what's your first kind of, Oh my gosh, there's a lot of people here <laughs> moment when you get to North Texas. You know, I'd only really been in Texas when I was on drum corps tour, you know, and that's it. And so uh, that's really all I knew. We knew about some of the programs. We had friends that had been teaching in, you know, in the Metroplex area, in the Dallas area. And so they kind of told us and gave the heads up. And for me, it was just like a whole new world. You know, it was like, oh, wow. I don't need to be in school. I could just come down here and teach lessons and live and be happy. You know, I had no idea this place has existed. Again, it was exposure. So um, moving to Texas wasn't that bad. I I mean, I obviously missed the, uh, the lush green, if you will, of <laughs> the Southeast, uh, which was not there in the Dallas area. It was a lot of concrete. But um, North Texas, I think when I first got there, I already knew a lot of several of the students, especially the drumline students, because they were in Crown or uh, they were in Madison Scouts that had just taught or they were friends of friends that had done drum corps or whatnot. And so, but I do remember the first thing we call them departmentals there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the auditorium is just full of people. Um, and I think when I got there, maybe there were 170 or something like that, you know, and so I think like a hundred of those were classical and then like 70 roughly of those were like the jazz guys and it was just this, this is all just all percussionists right percussion yeah 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 and i think there were there were four of us maybe that were doctorate and then i don't god i don't know eight eight or ten master students at that time and then yeah the rest were undergrads and it was just yeah it was insane and it's funny like it's been two or three years since I've judged a marching band contest, but sometimes, you know, when I'm judging a contest, like I remember being somewhere like 10 years, like, yeah, it's been about 10 years ago now, about 10 years after I started my doctorate, but it was like, so-and-so was a percussion major, the University of North Texas, you know, and graduated 2005. And I was like, I went over and introduced myself and I was like, so you were there these years? Yep. I was like, man, I sat in a room with you every Friday. I have no idea who you are. No idea. Never seen you before in my life. <laughs> so if they give you any clue. Yeah. Uh, there's just you so attended, many you, you attended together. Yeah. Yeah. We attended together. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the percussion program is bigger than a lot of departments of music, oh, you yeah. know, departments of music, brother. So yeah, it's just insane. It's a different, it's a different beast. And that's why the curriculum there is set up like it is. Cause you just, I don't think you could do individual undergraduate music ed kind of programs of study 
there's no way with that many students. That's in my opinion. I don't, what do I know? I don't teach there, but yeah, at the time it was just, yeah, it was just, a, it was just a different beast. Mm-hmm. But man, amazing yeah. teachers. Yeah. Amazing teachers. And yeah, Ed Self was still there. I got to stay with Ed Self and man, just, just a king of a teacher. Cause I know there you can kind of, there's so much to do that you can kind of figure out who you're going to study with. So who, who you end up spending your time studying with there? Um, we know Ford was my primary advisor just cause I was a doctoral student. And, um, at that time, like the doctor trauma still had students too. So I kind of came in, you're kind of either in doc's line of students or Ford's line of students. And so I came in kind of as Ford's line of students. I stayed with Ford, spent a lot of time with Christopher Dean. That was Dean's. I think that was his second year. Maybe when I came in second or third year, it was funny at the time because when I, I came in, I was a, you know, a classical percussionist. So I got assigned with the drum set teacher and they like, Oh, you're going to do these books, you know, and you open it up and it's like an Abersol book where everything's written out. And it was like, man, I'm not, well, this is what you're going to do for the semester. And it was like, well, okay, I'll see you at juries, you know, <laughs> like, cause I'm not learning anything. And uh, that one was frustrating, but then I got to study with Soph and Soph just opened up my eyes uh, about a lot of things, not just music, but um, yeah, it just made me think in a different format and like, how being a professor could be different than like what I'd seen before. He was a total different, he's kind of a clown, but very serious at the same time, (laughs) you know, uh, then I got to do, you know, some improv things with Ed Smith and then, yeah, getting Jose Aponte was a big influence. Yeah. All those. And just seeing Paul teach Paul Rennick, Paul's one of the, I would go to drumline rehearsals when I wasn't teaching and just, hear what he said and like the way he approached teaching things so musical, even though it was in a drumline idiom, you know? Um, yeah, but all that was great. And we had a lot of guest artists come in, but yeah, it was just a, it was a different thing. And you had, you know, just, you had a barrier system that you had to pass off. And my last summer, I went there summer of 2008 to finish my classes, living in the dorm, just, cranked out some of my classes I had to finish. And I was like, I've still got to pass off accents and rebounds. <laughs> I've still got to pass off my orchestral excerpts. You know, it's all a little practice pad in my room, like wondering if I was going to get asked that. Um, so if, if Mark Ford's listening, I'd never passed off accents and rebounds and orchestral <laughs> excerpts. Uh, I, still, I still need to pass those barriers off. Uh, one day, maybe. Yeah. Next Fulbright, maybe. <laughs> Next Fulbright, yeah. Next Fulbright, finish my barriers. <laughs> yeah. That's a rebound. <laughs> yeah, at the time, but they, you would do these things, and yeah, I just I was there with John Lane and Jason Baker, E.J. Fong, yeah. Rob Moore, uh, Juan Alamo. Oh God, the list just goes on. It was a great crew of people, you know. And I remember like we would do these four mallet interval parallel contrary motion things and they would call it interval parallel contrary motion and then uh, a sticking and I'll never one of my favorite stories about those barriers is John Lane went before me and he got called parallel perfect fist two one two three four three and I was like oh my god that, that means I'm screwed <laughs> he went, he went blah, 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 done okay pass 
And so, I, yeah, I got called minor six contrary motion. <laughs> it's like. Wow. I don't know. Know how applicable this is, but I passed. So, yeah, it was just a different <laughs> process. For your degree, what was the capstone finish? Did you have a dissertation or a doc or lecture recital? What kinds of stuff? It's called a dissertation, but I end up saying it's a document with a lecture recital. Mm-hmm. And basically, I just, you know, Paul, I did a, I analyzed Hop, the first Hop with Violin by Paul Ansky. Yeah. And because that was kind of Paul Ansky's way of getting to writing for acoustic music instead of electronic or electroacoustic music. And so I just analyzed that and um, got to have good conversations with him and went up to Princeton and talked with him. And yeah, it was a good, good relationship, but that was, that was it. My wife is a violinist. And so she, we were able to go together and play. When you get the Tennessee tech job, you are not done. No, 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 no. I was saved up and then my grandparents gave me money like that they had saved up and they helped me so I could go back that summer. I went that summer and finished courses. Then I took my exams like the next spring or something and then did the rest of the process uh, for the next two years and finished finally in 2010. Yeah. Mm. No, I had not. And that was... I was in school when the job came open. Unfortunately, the teacher that was there, Joe Rasmussen, he was in the middle of a marathon Labor Day weekend. Um, I had cardiac arrest and passed away, you know. Oh, wow. And, uh, I had just I'd been in Nashville the fall before and played with him and got to know him. And um, I got an email from Lalo Davida like that Sunday, and he was kind of just letting people know that he had passed away. And the Tuesday after Labor Day, I get a call at like 7.45 in the morning, and Mark Ford was like, hey, there's this... <laughs> there's a job open at Tennessee tech, you know, and then Jim Campbell called me. He's like, Hey, there's a job open at Tennessee tech. And, um, like right now, basically like, like right now, like, and, um, what happened is, and I got, I was fortunate, very fortunate. Um, the chair of the department at Tennessee tech, everybody called my name ended up on their list. Cause he said like, who do we need to hire for this one year? Mm-hmm. So he had called, Dan Moore, he had called Campbell, he had called Ford, and I think he had called the people at Forks, maybe, Drum Closet. Okay. And some, I was fortunate that my name ended up on that list. And so they called me and I got, I got the job on that Friday. I got it Friday morning and I had to, that day I had to drop, like, drop my job at Texas Women's University, cancel all my classes, get out of my apartment, and then I, I was driving on Saturday. And then I was at Tennessee Tech the next Monday, I guess. Monday or Tuesday. Wow. Yeah, it was that. It was that quick. Yeah, it was a wild time. <laughs> so, how far into your doctorate were you when you got when this happened? Well, I was gonna those four classes that I was gonna that I completed in two thousand eight. That's what I was gonna be doing that year. I was just freelancing. I was teaching lessons, playing when I could, and then I was taking. I was gonna take two. I was going to take three classes that fall, and then the next spring I was going to take a class and then do my exams. So I was just trying to work through the degree and finish it. Yeah, and I got the job, and fortunately I was able to keep it, you know. So you get hired on an emergency basis, obviously, mm-hmm. and then you they, they did they kind of repost the position? Or what, what happens? Okay. They did, yeah. 
which was awkward. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've been in that position, but it's just awkward. And so you're trying to recruit, you're trying to build, build the studio and the students are like, where are you going to be here? And it's like, well, at this time, I don't know, but if they don't hire me, they're going to hire somebody better, you know? So you should come anyway. Uh, and you get your friends calling and being like, Hey man, how's it going? Man, it's going great. How's it good? Good. I just want to let you know I'm applying, man. I just want to give you a heads up, <laughs> you know, it's like, cool. Well, if they hire you, they'll be lucky, you know? So, uh, but that's kind of went through and, um, yeah, I was fortunate. I got, I got the job out of that and then, yeah, yeah, it all worked out and I had a really good support system there, um, to be able to build a percussion program there. And Tennessee is like it is here too, man. Tennessee was full of wonderful percussion teachers that made education great, but made recruiting very hard, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're at a school that's got a tech in it, it probably is not a first thing that shows up on someone looking for an arts education. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's all kind of great programs in that state, you know, you got Lalo there, you got Chris Norton, Bill Wiggins, like all those guys in the Nashville area. Um, and then Julie had started the same fall at Martin on the other side of the state. Uh, and then Frank Schaefer was still at Memphis, you know, Andy Harnsberger down at Lee. Um, no, I don't remember what's going on with UT then. Um, that was kind of a transition at that time. Um, but yeah, it's sort of just a ton of great programs. Randy Sanderbeck over at ETSU, just these, all these strong programs. And then you got to come in and like try to start competing as this new guy, <laughs> you know? Um, but they were all supportive, just like it is here in North Carolina. It was, yeah, it was good. Got it. Did you have to do a thing where you're, you're doing your, your phone interview from like your car or something like that? Or <laughs> I did. I, I was in my office. Mm-hmm. They were like downstairs in the, room and they had yeah. a call and I was in my office and then uh, you know when the other two candidates came to campus I just stayed at home mm-hmm. and whatever, you know so yeah. but yeah it was yeah it was a good experience it was very very much a learning experience because I didn't know what to do yeah I just I was like oh man I'm going to lose in-state tuition credit from Texas like if I have to go back <laughs> <You know? laughs> I have to wait another year to start classes so I can afford it yeah. Oh, yeah. I, thought, I hadn't even thought about that part. <laughs> That's great. You, you and you, you get that phone call, and it's like, "Hi, Eric. Uh, my name is. Uh, I'm. I'm your current uh, chair." Um, right. <laughs> Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. It was super funny because it was like the, if I remember correctly, it was the jazz faculty member, and it was like, "Hey, Eric. This is Chris McCormick." He's like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, I know I'm going to see you this afternoon for rehearsal, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like for faculty jazz. <laughs> we had to do. Yeah, that, that's that's hilarious. When you do earn the, was it a tenure track position? I assume that for that after that. So when they, when you, when that turns, do they say, okay, you have this much? Do they put a limit, like how long you can take to finish your doctorate and did they like put a clock on your time pre-doctorate post-doctorate it was just that before i went up for promotion and tenure for associate professor that i had to have my dma finished that was kind of it and um you know they asked that during the interviews that year and i was just kind of like 
well, I'll stop doing my DMA so I could come here and teach for you, you know? So like, that's where we are. I am going to finish it, but that's where we are. And, uh, yeah, it worked out, worked out well. And it actually worked out to my benefit because when you got your doctorate, then you got a pay increase. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, yeah, it just happened to work out. Gotcha. Were you right at the end of your clock? <laughs> um, let's see. In terms was, of when you would have had to have gone up. Pretty close. I think yeah, I went up. Yeah, it must have been. It must have been like the year before I went up. I think that's what it was. I was also getting towards the end of like the 10 year timeline for your doctorate, too. Oh, no, that's right. That, too. I mean, both of those. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that at the same time. And it's just like, yeah, I just got to finish this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing it was similar, probably just trying to crank it out. Yeah, no, I, oh, I, I fortunately got it done in the, in the time and then got a job, uh, a yeah, part-time job right after that. But it was like, a, I had seen it. I had, I had had enough of the people who were doing the doctorate who had delays. Um, I had seen that enough where I'm like, I talked to court McLaren and I'm like, I was like, he's like, do you want to graduate in May? I said, yes. He's like, okay, I need your finished dissertation on my desk in three weeks. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it it took three and a half. I did not, I did not make the three, but, but it was like, okay, okay, okay. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. I can do this. Yeah. (laughs) But I had to like hyper, like stop hyperventilating when he told me how quickly I had to get it done. (laughs) But it worked. It worked. And and the other, the other thing you made me think of is my, my wife similarly, um, she took a job. We weren't married yet, but we were, she took a job after her when she still was, had a year left on her PhD. And same, she finished the first year of teaching and then rented out some subletted someone's apartment at Purdue, which is where she was at and wrote for like 12 hours a day for a month to, yeah. to finish it. And it was like that kind of like similar thing. Like, I'm just going to burrow and write and be done with this. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that skill set has helped me a lot after that, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, this is due next week. Okay. I know how to cram. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. I, there was some deadline that I got for something that's coming up that got extended and I was almost mad. I was like, I would have rather had you told me it was like three weeks earlier, actually, than a month later. Okay. Cause then I would have, yeah. I would have been, I would be done with this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like things that it was, it, it was a good program. You enjoyed being there at Tennessee tech. I did. Were you through that time? Were you also just applying just to kind of see, I mean, what, you know, why decide that you're going to even apply to other jobs if it, if it feels like it's going fairly well? There are two reasons. One, as you know, like I'd been in Greensboro before and I knew the school mm-hmm. and this job had always been in my brain mm-hmm. to like work here. Uh, the, I knew that the environment was very supportive and I knew it was a great place to live. Like it was centered in North Carolina and that you're you know, I'm three hours from the mountains and I'm three hours from the beach. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to move farther into the Midwest. No way. Like if this, job, like if I can have this, then that's great. 
And um, the second thing was, uh, man, I was there at a great time at Tennessee Tech. I had some just killer students. You know, I look at some of those people now, like, uh, yeah, there's so many of them. I can't, I can't even name them all. And they were incredible. Uh, but in 2012, we did the new literature session at PASIC. Mm-hmm. And I think I had nine freshmen that year. And at that time, the new lit session, I think it is still now, it's an hour and a half. Yeah, it's longer. Yep. Yeah. And um, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to have these nine freshmen go up on stage and like target practice with the music. Like, you know, there's what, 61 targets there on a marimba. There's a lot to miss. And so during the summer, I remember I messaged them as like, here are the pieces. I'll be assigning parts, but start listening to these. Um, and we're going to memorize the whole concert. It's going to be an hour and a half. We're going to memorize the whole thing. So the only stands we're going to need are for trap tables. And I thought they were just going to be like, no way, man. And they're like, okay. And they did it and they just went and killed it. And, um, and the thing that I realized after that concert, it was an undergrad only institution. I realized that the rest of my career then was going to be recreating something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was only, there was only so much rep that I was going to be able to do just because of the, the age and experience level of the student. And so the thing that attracted me here is I knew, as you said about the facilities, I knew about the support system of the faculty uh, as well as the university. But also having the grad students, there was a lot of rep that I wanted to kind of dig into and just teach at a different level. Um, yeah, and I'm fortunate that I've had that opportunity to do it. Because remind me where that school is. It Cookville? Cookville, yes. Yes. Did you like living in Cookville? I enjoyed it. It was uh, you know, a smaller town. It was about 40,000 people. It's, it's kind of like we were talking about Jackson was the gas stop from Memphis yeah. to Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cookville is kind of like the stop between Nashville to Knoxville for the UT fans. Mm, and there's actually a, a, a place called Interstate Row that just has, like, you pull off the highway and there's, I don't know how many, you know, chain restaurants there are. Oh, in, in uh, Knoxville, right? And now in Cookville, like, when you're oh. coming from Knox, Knoxville, you go down, I guess it's an hour and a half, two hours. You stop in Cookville, there's an Interstate Row you can pull off and eat at any of those places, then get yeah. back on the road and go to Nashville. Okay. Yeah. But the university is actually about 10 minutes into town off of the interstate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed living there and uh, I met my wife there and she was, she was in the Nashville symphony. And mm-hmm. so um, I actually met her. I was subbing in for a gig and she came back to like give Steinquest a hard time. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how we met. And yeah. And it just worked out when this Greensboro job opened, she knew that I wanted it. And, um, she was wanting to start working in the nonprofit things. And so that's where, where she was. And while she was comfortable moving here and she's kind of the one that made the final decision, I was kind of hemming and hawing because I built for me at the time, this kind of dynasty at Tennessee tech that I was really proud of. And, um, you know, built a studio. I, you know, I can like, I can look at them on Instagram now and I can look at every piece of equipment and know when I bought it and like where it came from, you know what I'm saying? Cause like yeah, yeah. I built, built it up. There are a lot of good things there from Rasmussen, but, um, so it was hard to leave. And finally, you know, so I got the job offer on a Saturday morning, Dennis Askew called me and, uh, I just, I couldn't make a decision. And then like on Wednesday of that week, I was sitting in bed and like reading about things and she threw this hat at me and she had bought me a UNCG hat. She's like, just go ahead and call him and accept the job. You know, we're going. 
<laughs> and so I put the hat on and it's like, okay, yeah. And I called him back and accepted the job. So yeah, which was a good move. Yeah. But yeah, in the time it's hard. It was a great, it was a great place. And there were a lot of great, Joe Herman was there, the director of bands and he's a big American Band Masters Association guy. And Winston Morris was teaching there still. He was, he's the father of the tuba ensemble. He's the guy that started the tuba euphonium ensemble. You know, he's the Paul Price for tuba euphonium. Greg Danner, the composition teacher was there. There was just, yeah, it was a good time to, to be there. Okay. I finished up with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, first question, Eric, what's something either percussion performance or percussion education related that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Man, I don't know. You got to be careful on that one. <laughs> All right. Keep your answer under 45 minutes if you can. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's, it hasn't bothered me. It's just like, it, it gets, I guess it's frustrating as you're saying, like it gets sure. frustrating is that we have so much literature out there, but, you know, publishers and state education lists, like they have to have lists from where people can draw from so they can get a, a scale of like how people are competing against each other. Mm-hmm. So we end up playing these, this only this core group of pieces and there's so many colorful things out there. And it's, um, I think that's what's frustrating to me is that um, I love percussion ensemble. Like I love teaching it. I love getting to develop it but the older I get and maybe I'm just getting midlife get off my lawn guy you know um, but you know I just I was at North Texas when we had a chance to premiere Vespertine Formations mm-hmm. and every a lot of the mallet quartets out of here now are Vespertine Formations in a different format <laughs> and so like uh, those things get frustrating because there's so many other ideas that we could be pulling from. And I feel like composers start saying like, well, this is what worked for this person. And so then I'm going to do that and steal that and put it in a different key or what, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so I feel like, um, I think if I'm like get frustrated, I think it's with sometimes to get frustrated with percussion composers that are stealing from other composed percussion composers and doing the same percussion idiomatic things and not thinking about music and like, what's actually going on in their brain, not, not trying to interpret somebody else's ideas, but using their own. Uh, I think th- that was a, a frustrating thing for me. It's that. Yeah. It does sometimes happen. I, I certainly, I think about it from like you going to PASIC for so long as you have as well. And you'll hear like the either, it would be like the new literature concert or it'd be like, you know, an IPEC or, you know, mm-hmm. where there, there's a new, there's like a bunch of new compositions on there. And, and I always think like, how many of these am I going to hear again in my lifetime? Yeah. And I, it kind of, to me, it goes back to your question of like, well, if this sounds like Vespertine, why don't I just play Vespertine? Why don't you just play Vespertine? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's going to play Vespertine again. Like this is, I enjoyed that. It's a better piece. And Yeah. Professionally, that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, on a related note with, because you've won the IPAC a couple times with your groups and um, in the various formations, do you find that, that when you go to PASIC and we'll speak specifically of that, that when there are other college groups playing that you feel like, 
if you go to those, do you go because you you just want to go, or do you feel like you have to see what's going on and um, how can my group stay up? Where what's kind of your mindset with those other concerts? Um, we know. I think like for us this last year, it's like. I know Tom and I know Scott and I know Andrew Ling. You know, I just went on like a, I don't know what it was, a eight or nine day hike. And Andrew Ling was part of that group. So it's like, you know, I was talking to him beforehand. And it was like, man, when's your concert? Cause I want to do a, we need to do a run out, like get some jitters out. So we did it that morning. So we could get back in time for Alabama's concert. And we went, you know, it's almost soon. It's like, go support them. Like, what are they doing? That's cool. Check it out. Their stuff's going to be different than what we're doing. Thank God, you know, that we're not all doing the same thing. I think it is a thing to like curiosity, like seeing what other people are doing, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been fortunate. I've gotten to judge the the tapes, you know, the recordings that people submit several times. And I, you know, I, I was one of the judges this year and it was just like, oh, my God, they're good. You know, these groups are just it's insane, like how well they're playing and how the groups that are sending in tapes, like how much of an like an opinion that they have on the pieces and like their phrasing was so clear. And like, it was like, man, that's not in the score like that, but I hear what you're doing. And like, thank you for having an opinion, you know, like, yeah. So I think there is an element of like kind of keeping up and like seeing what's being created, but also appreciating what somebody else is doing, even though it's different than what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, this year I didn't get to see Texas concert because they did the morning concert and we did the afternoon on Friday this year. So I didn't get to see them, but um, we got to see some of Alabama's and then I got to see Scott Herring's group and they just, yeah, they killed it. They were great. Yeah. Totally different than Mm -hmm. what we did and totally different from each other. But yeah, it was just cool to see. Other questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? (laughs) There are two things. One is in my, undergrad i think i ended up when i'm undergrad when i was teaching at tennessee tech the undergrad students there i guess i wore like a a blue shirt and like jeans or khaki pants and way too often and they asked my wife they they told her they said hey we're gonna wear this on thursday make sure he wears that and so we all ended up dressing like each other so that was fun and then um i don't i don't accept students for a second degree um, I just don't, I think they're getting like, just for me, I just think it, they need to go out and explore more. So, but this year I had a student when I got here, she was a junior and she did like her junior recital, did her senior recital and then student taught. So I didn't really get to have enough, an opportunity. So I've accepted her for a doctorate and she's, she's incredible, but she came the other day we met yesterday and she was just, she kept laughing. I would say something, she would laugh. She'd be like, she's like, I'm gonna make a t-shirt of these things that you say all the time. <laughs> So I don't even remember what they were now, but she was just kind of giggling over there. And I was like, oh, I guess I've been saying these for nine years now. (laughs) Didn't realize it. That's why I don't have students again. It's really is that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. That's good. It's good to know. It's good to know that that's uh, that's why, you know, the the real reason. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, speaking of clothing, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? I have a, I don't know what, it's like a soccer jersey, but it, I don't know how to say this correctly, but yeah, it's very, I'm from West Tennessee, so it would fit appropriate. Like, like no sleeves, total open. 
and it was it was the Cavaliers like I taught there in 2018, and that's what they bought for their percussion shirts. It's just green and like open, like no arms, and I'm like, <laughs> and sun's out, guns out, but not for me, you know. <laughs> I'll keep it with my name on there, but it'll just sit in the closet. Yeah, that's probably that's probably it. That's awesome. <laughs> Great. All right. Next what? up, what was your worst job growing up? <laughs> I was a busboy at Shoney's. Whoa! And I worked there one summer, and um, the job itself was fine, but there were two waitresses that were just crazy. And so I would be washing dishes and there'd be, whoosh, they would like come in and throw glasses at, like at the wall to scare me. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So that, that was probably the, the worst job I've had. Yeah. <laughs> have you eaten in a Shoney since? No, uh, no, no, maybe I have maybe once or twice, but yeah, not, no, not much. I don't even know if Shoney's is still open to be honest with you. I, I it's been a while since I've even seen one now that you say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. That's hilarious. All right. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? I'm showing my age, but I still like Indiana Jones. Any of oh. the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, huge fan. My wife plays in Pro Musica uh, Chamber Orchestra in Columbus, Ohio. She's actually there right now. She goes there once a month, and when she's gone, like Friday and Saturday night after the kids go to bed, I, I swear I just I watch Indiana Jones. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not that big. A, I'm a Star Wars fan somewhat, but not not as much as my son. But uh, yeah, I just like Indiana Jones. Gotcha. Terrible movie. I don't know if I can answer that one. I think it's because I just I will go to a movie with anybody because I love popcorn. <laughs> I'll go and watch anything. Oh yeah, this is raw, raw, raw. You know, just. <laughs> Feed my face. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. God, I don't. I don't. I don't, th I don't know if I have an answer for terrible movie. Okay. Yeah, not this time. I'd have to think on that one. Yeah. But definitely for the favorite, it's going to be any of the Indiana Jones. Even the the fourth one. Even the one yeah. that was. Okay. Yeah, I like the Crystal Skull. Yeah. yeah. A few years ago, I, well, it's more than a few, but they reshowed um, Raiders on the on like a large screen in a giant auditorium with a with like a packed house and it was okay there's a there's a number of things that do not hold up well like racially basically but oh, yeah. as an experience fantastic like i had forgotten how much fun that movie is yeah yeah some of the things do not hold up well yeah true <laughs> but yeah I think it's because I watched them as a kid and I liked them and I've just, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The archaeologist adventurer seems, uh, yeah, inviting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the face melting is still incredible. I just, just, <laughs> it's so iconic. I mean, I like, you don't, you never forget that when you see it, like the first time you see that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Awesome. Um, all right. What's a favorite book? I, I tell everybody the same book. So you're talking about DMA and I was listening to um, Caleb's podcast that you just posted with him. You guys were talking about reading so much and your yeah. doctorate and all that. Well, I was the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. I was just burnt out. Like 
I took an Alvin Berg like seminar class where we just read Adorno and I was just obliterated. I didn't want to read anything. And um, summer of 2006, I was teaching drum corps and one morning I got up and ran and ended up twisting my ankle, totally trashed my ankle. I had to have a pen put in it. And so that summer um, I was back, I stayed with my parents for a week just to like recoup. And I got this book by uh, called Fluke by Christopher Moore. Okay. And it was one of the, I read it like, you know, front to back one sitting and it's the funniest book I think I've ever read. And I ended, I've ended up reading all of his books now, but mm. um, that was the one I even wrote him. And at the time, I guess he wasn't as big as a deal as he is now, but I just wrote him. I was like, you know, just thank you for getting me back into reading. Cause I was just sizzled from academia, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, that was a great one. Did, did he write you suck? You suck. Yep. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Now he's kind of doing like parodies of Shakespeare. That's mm. what he's doing now. He's, he's kind of on that track. Uh, yeah. They're all hilarious. And this one, it was about uh, uh, this guy's studying whale song. And uh-huh. so he's, he's out in the water and the whale eats him and he passes out and he wakes up and there's these dolphins driving the whale to the center of the world. And it's just, it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. That's great. All right. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? <laughs> I don't. And I've only, I've only done karaoke once. Yep. And this was like during my undergrad and it was, we were at a place and it was my buddy, Rob Parks. And I had said, my buddy, Rob Parks just passed away a few weeks ago. Great guy. But we sang like a virgin together. And that, <laughs> For anybody that may be listening and knows Rob knows that that's a perfect one because he's a clown or was a clown. But uh, yeah, that that was it. And that's the only time I've done karaoke. Yeah. That's you go out on a high note with that one, actually. Yeah. I think. yeah one and done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, growing up in Tennessee, when and where you did, do you have a sports fandom? Um. You know, my grandfather, we watched a lot of Atlanta Braves with my grandparents. Oh, okay. Dale Murphy era, and then mm. Atlanta Chipper Jones yeah. era. Yeah, and kind of once I started teaching, I, I really haven't followed sports that much. I mean, like anybody that goes to Kentucky, you get involved following Kentucky basketball. Mm-hmm. It sinks into you, but that's been kind of it. But, yeah, I guess – I was never a University of Tennessee fan. I never could wear the orange and the the big T's. Um, or, the, or Memphis State fan, which would have been. I wasn't as far as sports, no. Mm. No. It was just Atlanta Braves. I, I liked a lot of baseball things. They were the they're kind of the team. Cardinals for a little bit. Ozzy Smith era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were fun back then. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, what's something – on the more obscure, it could be on the obscure side, but something that if you meet someone and they say, I like, like whatever that is, and you would immediately go, all right, we're good. What's that for you? Uh, I'd say the things that come to mind, there are probably two things. And obviously right now it's like, I like this type of Brazilian music, like because mm-hmm. I've all, all been doing, but also people that would be okay with like, cheap beer in the summertime <laughs> so, like I love craft beer but like 
I'm, when it's hot, like a PBR is just fine. So I think <laughs> people that are okay with drinking a dollar PBR. A, a natty light, you're like, sure. Let's uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe PBR is my level. I don't know where that is with natty light. But yeah, it's just so hot. It's just like you just want something cool. It doesn't have to be a $6, you know, 94% alcohol craft beer. I want to be able to drive home. Right, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I got you. That, that's fair enough. What's a non-music related goal that you still have for your life? You know, the last, uh, I think it's, there are two things. There's, I've been really into backpacking, like overnight, like hiking. I've been trying to do section things of the Appalachian Trail. Um, and we go to New Hampshire. We play a music festival in New Hampshire every July. And so I've been able to go up there. With Megan, right? Megan was there. Yeah. We yeah. were we live right next to each other this year. Her, her office is literally right there. Right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's not there, but that's where her office is. So No, they're crazy. They were gone for They're still gone. It's like eight weeks. Yeah. yeah. This but Bill and Amelia were right next to us in the awesome. summer. And um, so that gave me a bug hiking. And then I've been getting into kayaking mm. uh, lately. And so learning that and learning how to paddle and all that. Yeah. I think those things and just like keep moving and, being outside yeah. uh, to stay sane. Very cool. Sure. It's somewhat relatedly, but where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Australia. Yep. I had a friend that is, I guess still is, uh, the wind ensemble conductor there, Nicholas Williams at Melbourne Conservatorium. He just got the job at University of Georgia. And I was like, Nick, come on, man. I want to go down there while you're still there <laughs> to Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, I had a chance to work with uh, a composer there to Katie Abbott uh, last year. And so I think there's a lot of cool percussion things happening. Uh, you know, you got ensemble offspring in Sydney. Like there's so many cool things there, but just getting to see the countryside there and just, yeah, I want to go to Australia. That's a long answer to that. <laughs> That's that's a bucket list uh, destination. Awesome. Very cool. All right. couple more. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? There are two. Like my undergrad, I don't know if you ran it too, but like in Find Me Alpha, we would have these recitals. <laughs> and one we did a recital and they had somebody set up my music and I was doing some kind of multi-percussion piece and I walked out on stage and they had put my music upside down and I was like a sophomore and I was nervous and it was like, I got, I'm just, so I just played it like trying to read it upside down and it went fine because I, I realized like I basically memorized it. Um, that woman was one. And then uh, I played for Seamus, like the society for electroacoustic music. Mm. And uh, I was doing this piece and it, one of the triggers didn't go um, when I got to like this pitch class and I got there and I just had to keep improvising on the same three notes to try to trigger. And I looked in the back and the composer was on the computer like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, and I could tell like, I just kind of laughed in the performance. And for me, it was like it was literally like a minute of me just trying to improvise on those notes and him trying to find the one little check that he didn't get to trigger that sample and freaking out. But. I think those are probably the funny, odd moments that have happened. Yeah. Um, we also had a, we had a percussion quartet called the Bain Percussion Group at North Texas. And um, that was a group that premiered Vespertine with Dean. But we, we did some tours. And one time we did, 
we were in Sherman, Texas at Austin College. And we went and set up and it was a smaller campus and we didn't see any publicity for it. And it was like, uh, you know, we can put this on our resumes and we'll get it run through the concert. But man, let's, nobody's going to come to this concert. So we just went and had like CeCe's Pizza <laughs> before the concert. And you know, like how carbs are, it's just going to make you draggy. You're going to yeah. go to sleep. And we got back at like 720 because we were like, nobody's coming. And the church was full, full of people. And we're like, oh, my God, we got to straighten up. We got to wake up. And it was a really good performance. It went really well. And it's probably because we were like, oh, we got to wake up. But that was one of the worst decisions we, <laughs> we ever made. CC's pizza. Yeah. Of all the things to decide. No money. It was the closest place sure. to this campus. And it was like, let's just go eat. We'll go run through this and then pack up and go home. Yeah. We had all of the instruments in the back of John Lane's pickup truck. Uh huh. Yeah, and they had like a tarp over it. And it was so crazy. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's, let's all have seven pounds of pizza each and uh, yeah. do a concert. Yeah, see if we can focus. Yeah. Well, now you know you can do it. I mean, I don't know. You can do it, right? Yeah. 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 Man. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Last question, Eric. What one piece of art could be music, movies, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, uh, anything has impacted you the most recently? I mean, you know, and it's just because it's it's prevalent in my mind, but just being in Brazil and the culture there of people like knowing these tunes and singing all the time, like everybody would sing and you would go to a bar and people start playing and everybody, everybody knew Forhall, they knew Luis Gonzaga and they would start singing along, you know, and it's that, I think that's what, uh, for me, like things that are moving me is that is like getting people for the same cause on things, you know, there's a book I just read this summer called, um, gifts from the sea. Okay. Uh, it's like a hundred page book and it's about seashells and this lady's story with them. And it's, I've been reading a lot about like how to simplify your life. So like I read like how to break up with your phone and like those kind of books. And this is kind of the same thing. And it's talking, it's mainly written for, um, I guess women identifying people, but it's kind of, you know, it's an older book, but just talking about gender roles and like how some of the things are actually, like maybe they're beneficial, like if we continued these gender roles and it was very interesting in talking about simplifying your life. Um, so yeah, I think that literature was pretty been inspiring too. That was fun. Thanks so much to Eric Willie for his time and his storytelling. I very much enjoyed hearing about it all and all of the things that are happening at a special place for my own success as a student. Best of luck to him in the coming months and years, and looking forward to meeting up with him soon. This week's rave is a bit different this time. I'm not going to rave about a specific book or movie or some other piece of culture, but rather it's more of a directive. As I talked about in the opening, I have a recital coming up early next week. And it's as good of a time to say this. 
go see your friends slash colleagues slash family in performance. Doesn't matter what kind of performance. One of the things that can be dispiriting as, and I have to be fair to myself in this designation, a some of the time performer, I don't need to do this all that often, is when you give a concert and have very, very few people there. I've been on both sides of that equation, and it can be pretty sad and disheartening. I know this from all the times that I see folks in concert that it means a lot when you attend. A lot. And it means a lot also when you attend other folks' recitals. And it would mean a lot to you if they reciprocated and came to yours. And additionally, the more you see of people in performance, the more you're going to like. Plain and simple. It's math and science. And it will inform your own work and your own hobbies, whatever they are. So please, support your folks. See them perform and enjoy it. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.